afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Mad Hat Economics. This is Jackie Stein here. Today, I'm with Professor David Just. Hello. Our guest star, Professor Vicki Bogan. Hello. Siren Casso. Hey. And Liz Bell. Hi. Today, our topic is education and saving for college. Uh, Vicki Bogan is an expert at the Cornell Dyson School of, Eco- of Applied Economics and Management. And we're going to be talking about some different parent behaviors and what people should be doing and what they actually do. So David? Yeah, yeah. So um, this is actually a really nice time to be doing this. My, my, we, we just got finished. My daughter applied to a whole bunch of schools. I've never sent a child to college before. And, uh, and, and so I'm thinking pretty heavily now, maybe more so than I, I was earlier, about how in the world I'm going to pay for all this. So what... what what advice would you have for a parent? Maybe not one in my position, but getting ready to be. Okay, so I would suggest to start early <laughs> and do as much as you can. So, so not right now. So, yeah, so I'm speaking to you with regard to your other children uh, <laughs> that are a bit younger. And so I really think that when you're thinking about saving for the education of your children, uh, you want to be able to take advantage of the miracle of compounding. So start as soon as you can. If it's possible and you can open up a 529 plan the week after your child is born, that's a great idea. Or any other kind of educational savings program. Now, now, is the 529 plans, they're, they're state-level plans, right? Are, is there enough of a difference between the 529s that you should care which state you're in? So when you think about 529s, there are a couple of benefits. So one benefit is at the federal level that the investments that you make, uh, you do not have to pay taxes on the income that's earned on the investments during the time that's in the 529 plan. So that's a big benefit. The other benefit uh, can be at the state level. And I say can be because with 529 plans, often states allow you to deduct your contribution from your taxable income. But that is not the case uniformly across all states. So it's very important to understand the tax implications with regard to your specific state. We live in New York State, and so New York State does allow you to deduct up to $10,000 from your state taxable income. So that can have a very big advantage for you from the tax perspective. Right. And and my understanding is there's a pretty good amount of flexibility with those 529. So if you're like me, you have multiple children, you can, you can move money from one 529 to another and... and Exactly. And so you can, if you don't use all the funds for your daughter, you could roll your daughter's 529 funds into your son's 529 plan. And so that's uh, a good option as well. The other benefit of a 529 plan is uh, oftentimes they're designed such that the investment portfolio changes over time to match the age of your child. So as your child gets older and you're going to need to have more immediate access to the funds, they uh, change the allocation between risky and safe assets within the portfolio. So you have access to funds when you need them. So is there any good way, I'm not sure if you would have any idea about this, but is there any good way to know exactly how much you should be targeting? Uh, well, <laughs> there are a lot of factors that go into that. So first, it, 
it depends. How many children do you have? Um, how are you set on them going to a private school versus a public school? Uh, do you want them to, if they're going to go to a public school, are you comfortable with them doing the in-state public school? And so it's difficult when they're three weeks old to really understand uh, how much they should be targeting or how much money you would need. But as they age, you'll get a better and better sense of what types of universities they would be targeting. And so... College is very expensive. I think that you should save as much as you can. And so that's a very unsatisfying answer, but... That's basically the, the way to go. Just, <laughs> exactly. Just put everything in there you can. Yeah, and you can always encourage them to go to grad school after <laughs> after undergrad to you know use all the money. And some of that money rolls over into you can pay for your housing, correct? Is uh, housing and food costs. While you're in school. While you're in, while you're in, while school. You're in school. While yeah. you're in school. That's what I did because I actually have a 529. Okay. <laughs> okay. That, that helped a lot. So. And, and I, I do want to have a caution here. When I say put as much as you can, households that have children also have other financial demands. And mm -hmm. so it's always a balancing act. And so putting money into your 529 should not come at the expense of putting money in your 401k plan and saving for your retirement. And one of the big issues with college is that you're able to borrow to finance your college, your children's college education. That's not the case. Um, you're not able to borrow to finance your retirement. Yeah. And so it's important to think about your finances, not from a, you know, one thing, you know, bucket perspective, but look at your whole financial portfolio and all the needs that you have and that you're going to have and think about it from a big picture perspective. So, so basic rule of thumb is maybe first priority retirement, second priority college, but there are some other things you might want to think about as well. Exactly. That's a good yeah. rule of thumb. <laughs> right. We get medical costs and then retirement comes after the kids go to school too. So... That's Hopefully. Time. <laughs> I, I don't think retirement can come before the kids go to school, yeah. given the cost nowadays. Right. That's, that's a good point. Good point. Well, so how, how do how do people fall down? I mean, so you, you've given us a sort of run through of, of the right things to think about and maybe, a, maybe some rules of thumb in terms of strategy. How do we screw up? <laughs> well, uh... The thing with saving for college or saving for retirement or saving in general is that it's difficult because people have uh, what economists call time inconsistent preferences. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and the issue is it's really hard to save. That's the big issue. And so people fall down because it's hard to save now when you have sort of pressing demands or pressing consumption needs or wants. Um, it's difficult to deny yourself the opportunity to spend or consume now to save for something that's 15 to 20 years so in just, the future. You just face too much temptation to buy the shiny object now rather than, okay, yeah. Or even demanding uh, finances like mortgages and things like that. Uh, often is a problem for people who have lower incomes. Or, exactly. Um, I mean, unfortunately, there's there are a large number of families that are financially fragile. Mm -hmm. That uh, there was an interesting article in the Atlantic. I did a comment about it by uh, Neil Gelbler that said um, some data indicated that almost half of households 
don't have the reserve fund to cover a $400 emergency expense. Wow. Wow. And so this financial fragility in households across the U.S. is becoming an increasingly important big issue. People are consuming and living more off debt than they are off income, which is another factor that impedes their ability to save. Wow, that's enough of the U.S. We're not we're not only talking about you know households in poverty. We're talking about households that actually make reasonable amounts of money and just don't manage it. Exactly. So are there any recommendations for those kinds of families to maybe turn things around? Well, I think debt management is Mm -hmm. a huge issue. And it's before you can think about saving, you're going to also have to think about debt reduction. And any household that has a significant amount of debt needs a debt reduction plan. And if you're going to reduce your debt, generally the best rule of thumb is start paying down the credit cards first. They have the highest interest rates. <laughs> they, um, they're bad. <laughs> Our debt is bad. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, and it's it's really difficult to save when you have this debt. And, and it's not clear that you should be saving all that much when you have debt because your savings, especially in this, in this time, you're not earning that much. Uh, yeah. And you're paying very high interest rates on credit cards. And so yeah. so long as you have that debt under control, I mean, this is another way in which I think the 529s could be actually very helpful in that it's money that you sort of put off limits to yourself um, in this account. Could you get at it and use it for something else? Yeah, but you'd end up paying a big penalty and it'd be a big hassle. So it's a bit of a commitment mechanism to be able to throw that money in there and not have to think about it. <laughs> That's an excellent point. And what I would add to that is setting up a 529 with an automatic deposit feature Mm -hmm. is even better uh, because it gets taken directly out of your check. It goes right to the 529. You don't miss that money as much and it's set up so you can just automatic, you can save without having to think about it. And so those are good for 529 plans. Those are good for your 401k -hmm. plans. Those are good for savings plan, saving in general. It's these automatic, automatic deposits. And then with debt repayment as well, maybe you can automatize everything. Is that... I don't know if the credit cards allow you to automatically repay. It's not in their best interest for you to pay off your debt. They want you to pay the minimum balance. And Mm. if you you have the option not to do that, don't do it. Pay your credit cards off. That's actually in full. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and hey, using credit cards mm-hmm. are—it's it, a great thing to do as long as you don't revolve the debt and roll the credit. If you pay mm-hmm. them off in full every month, a very smart way to manage your money. If you just pay the minimum balance, it's going to take you forever to pay off whatever you bought on sale or mm-hmm. <laughs> thought you were getting a good deal on. By the time you pay it off, it'll be in a landfill somewhere, and you're still paying for it because you're still paying that credit card bill. Yeah, it's, it's a. If you are paying it off in full, you're 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 still getting the interest on the money that's sitting in your bank over the, in the meantime, which is going to be well less than a cent, but mm-hmm. you're still getting it. And and the credit cards offer some bit of protection on your transactions that you don't get from a bank card or or even cash, right? right. So it's it can be useful, and and it can be a short term interest free loan if you pay it off. Yeah. So you buy a big ticket item on the day that your credit card bill is issued, you really have almost two months to get your finances together to pay that off. And so 
I, I don't think the credit card companies like that too much, but <laughs> <Yeah>. it's <laughs> probably, it, it's a, a useful management strategy, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, um, so we've talked a lot about these 529s. How, how do they actually function? How are they managed on the other end? So generally with the 529s, you sign up for a 529 and it's managed by some type of investment company like TIA Cref or some type of firm. And so uh, they have a fund manager that actually manages the portfolio and decides what the investment should be and decides how it's managed. And generally you can, with depending on the 529, you can off, opt for a static option where the proportions of your funds are allocated to different asset classes and that stays the same over time. Or you can have an age-based 529 plan where the allocation to different asset classes changes over time based on the age of your child. And so do they end up achieving the same sorts of returns you would get with other managed funds? Mm -hmm. The 529s? Yeah. (laughs) That's unclear. I mean, I don't have any data to... uh, to say one way or the other. Okay. Uh, so I can't answer. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, what I would caution is to make sure that you're aware of the asset-based fees associated with the 529 plants. Okay, and, and describe so, that for us. So mm-hmm. asset-based fees are they charge you a fee based on the percentage of funds you have in the 529. Right. And so... Different 529s have different asset-based fees. So not all 529s have the same fee structure. So understanding the fee structure of your 529 plan is important because often some 529 plans in other states, not New York State, but in other states have very high asset-based fees. And when you incorporate um, the fees and account for the fees when you're thinking about how much your return is, they erode some of your return. And you might have, you might be better off just investing in another type of asset class or mutual fund on your own. Huh. And how does that compare with the tax benefit of you not having to pay taxes on that money? Is that it's all kind of like an accounting balance there? It, I mean, that's a very good point. I mean, you have to weigh the you know, the tax benefit that you get with the 529 versus the fees that they charge and make sure that the additional fees that they charge don't erode the tax benefit that you get. And so there's not one answer for every, you know, situation. It needs to be, the analysis needs to be done on a household by household level. Yeah, that's that's sort of complicated. (laughs) Yeah. But so how do you think can households can see it clearly? Like, could, uh, should they can they ask to the bank with, about it and like see it transparently? Like, what are they earning from taxes and like what are the fees and compare them? No, I think um, the bank isn't really going to be the place to get that type of information. I think if you're interested in understanding the tax implications of that investment, your accountant is probably the best person to go to. Um, The banks actually don't even sell the 529 plans. Usually you can, the most effective, cost-effective way to do is enroll online um, and do a direct plan. So you're not going through a broker plan where you pay even higher fees. So 
get advice from your accountant mm-hmm. and enroll online. <laughs> that's, that's, exactly. that's the plan. Well, first enroll. Get advice from your accountant on um, how you should manage that okay. and how much you should contribute and what your benefit would, would be. And enrolling in line would be is the most cost-effective way to do that. Okay. So do you think 529 plans are good for everyone, or is there a specific person that should shy away? If you have children, I don't know if there's a person that should shy away from a 529 plan, uh, unless you're in a income bracket in which you're able to get financial significant financial aid, uh, then the 529 isn't going to be... Yeah, I would suppose um, if your tax burden is really, really low anyway yeah, and, yeah. and you're going to be able to get financial aid, then it might be a, a horse race between the two, but yeah. Okay, so in my family, all of my siblings and I are in college or in grad school, except for one, and <laughs> but we're five, so it's quite a bit. <laughs> and then my, my grandmother is, has been sick for quite a while, and my parents are facing paying medical bills. So they're kind of torn between paying for us, paying for her, you know, helping everyone out, and also managing the house and everything in between. How can they manage their 401k <laughs> while dealing with all of this? Yeah, I mean, that's a really difficult question that is facing a lot of households now. Increasingly, the baby boom generation is put in a situation where they're becoming the sandwich generation. And the sandwich generation is caught between the financial responsibilities and obligations to their children and their financial responsibilities, obligations, and desire to help their parents and who have been living longer. And so your situation is not uncommon. Um, It's difficult and there's no easy answer. I think the main thing to keep in mind is that it's, you can't ignore any goal. So it, you can't, while you're you know, paying for your children's college and um, paying medical bills, you still need to make sure that you allocate at least some money to put away for your retirement. And so it's very difficult to catch up mm-hmm. uh, with retirement. And so even if you think it's a modest amount that you're contributing to your 401k, it's still important to try to keep that, keep that stream of saving in your retirement accounts, even though you have some competing demands. So, so when, it, when we were talking about college versus retirement, you had a, a reasonably simple rule of thumb. Is there any similar rule of thumb here? <laughs> uh, no, I think it's, um, again, it's really a case-by-case basis because yeah. you ha- your, your grandparents have medical bills, but your parents might have siblings, and so it's really about how the family unit decides to divide up those responsibilities, but it's just important not to ignore any aspect of your sort of financial health. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess part of that is you, the consequences for, uh, for the medical problems um, the, the parents may be right. facing, those can be very different depending on what the case is, right? Yes. So tough situation one way or the other yeah they tell us um their gift to us is our education so i think there's some high hopes there that you know maybe that'll make up for the, the retirement savings but uh, planning so, for your own sandwich yeah, later right, exactly. so 
I guess the key thing is not to be too overconfident in your children and their generosity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the future. Well, I, I mean, I've heard of some people, they're, the, having a lot of children is their retirement plan. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> that, I, a, that used to be yeah, fairly common yeah, before, um, before Social Security, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. I have a lot of children, and they'll be able to come together and take care of me. And that is a reasonable line of thinking for a lot of people. So long as you raise them right. (laughs) (laughs) Push them towards the high paying jobs. Yes, yes. Raise raise them to be be investment bankers. (laughs) (laughs) Their kids' education, so that kind of can get caught too. Did you have anything to add, Liz? I I thought you were saying something. Oh, no. I just, so my dad actually told me and my brother that one year that our gifts for Christmas were our education. So my brother just got him a thank you card in return. Um, <laughs> didn't get him anything else. I shall have to try this. This will save me a lot of money this Christmas. <laughs> you might get a thank you card back, too. <laughs> for parents stuck in the sandwich who also, maybe they want to make some money on investing, um, what is the typical recommendation? Is it index funds or is it... Um, how can they maybe also be a little risky with their money as well if they have a good balance? Okay. So I'll tell you my one rule when I do any workshop or financial seminar. I don't give specific investing advice. <laughs> and the reason is if it goes badly or the markets go down, I don't want you coming after me. Um, but I will say in general, it's important to think about some key principles. Mm-hmm. Okay. The data has shown that consistently investing in the stock market over a long time horizon is the key to wealth building. And so, uh, and when I say I need to emphasize long investment horizon, mm-hmm. so you shouldn't put money into financial market uh, stock markets that you're going to need to take out in six months or a year. You need to have the luxury of a long investment horizon so you're not forced to take money out of the stock market because you need it during a downturn. You, you need to be able to ride the ups and downs and have the luxury of taking your money out of the market when it's up and not being forced to take it out when it's down. And so I think that ha- you know households should make sure that they have a diversified portfolio mm-hmm. and they have a non-zero portion of their household portfolio invested in more risky assets over the long term because those are the only ones that are really going to generate the returns that you need that are going to outpace inflation that can be wealth building in the long run. We've been talking a lot about uh, you know things that we need to invest for as parents. Um, you've actually done quite a lot of research on on how parents invest their money. Tell us a little bit about what you found. So actually, an, an interesting piece of research I did, um, we all know that gender can influence your level of risk aversion. There's a mm-hmm. lot of data that suggests that women are more risk averse than men for investing reasons. And there have been a lot of identified mechanisms for this effect. Uh, one of the things that I research was looking at how the gender of your children affects your investment choices. And what I found is that in contrast to what I originally thought, you know, women are more risk averse. Perhaps if you have uh, female children, you'll be more risk averse too. I found actually the opposite, that 
families with female children are more risk-seeking with their investment portfolios. They're much more likely to invest in risky assets and also invest a larger portion of their household portfolios in risky assets. So why do you think that is? So um, my, um, I think it's because households recognize uh, that investing in risky assets generates higher returns. And so, you know, and this is just a conjecture on my part, that households with female children feel that they may have more financial obligations than households with male children. And so you uh, abstract away from college education, which, you know, people educate their children equally uh, generally, but there's no wedding to pay for. Um, There are no other kinds of ancillary issues that Mm -hmm. you may feel um, more compelled to pay for when you have female children. I'll tell you an interesting story. When I was doing this research, I had an undergraduate research assistant that was helping me. And when when I started doing the analysis and I was like, this is a really interesting result. She said, it makes perfect sense to me. And, And I said, why would you think that? What sort of your in- intuition beyond that? She said, well, I have a brother. And <laughs> when uh, he got his driver's license, my father gave him the worst beat up, you know, jalopy of a car and didn't really care if something happened to it or it got broken down. And then when I got my driver's license, it was important that they buy me a newer car that was safer um, because they were concerned that if I broke down, there would be some issue. And so um, that was her working hypothesis, so I don't That's know. That's funny. Same, <laughs> it is the same in my family. My oh, brother really? got a, like an old beat-up truck <laughs> that is like, ba- can't even make it a four-hour trip. <laughs> I got a brand new t- 2010 <laughs> Mazda uh, 3. <laughs> and so there may be, you know, either consciously or subconsciously this um, thought that I'm going to need more financial resources for whatever reason mm-hmm. when I have female children, and so that prompts people to invest more aggressively so they can earn higher returns. That's that's really interesting, mm-hmm. fascinating. I mean, I, I could I can empathize. I've got boys and and a girl, um, and yeah, I, I think very differently about the you know the financial future of of paying for them them and their schooling and everything else. Right. Yeah, I was, I was just wondering, how does that translate to college savings? Do they tend to save more for a boy versus a girl? I did look right. at that, and that's not the case. Okay. Yeah, so there's no difference. There's no. Mm-hmm. I, I've looked at that, and not necessarily this paper, but I've looked mm-hmm. at that, and there doesn't seem to be a gender-based difference in saving for the college education of girls versus boys. Um, but with regard to um, investments and risky asset holding, I did mm-hmm did see a statistically significant effect. Huh. I'd, it'd, be, it'd be fun to follow up this paper and see uh, see if you can actually see that difference in expenditures on, on male versus female children. That is a great idea. Right? Okay, so now we have a potential... Uh, <laughs> Something we've got to work on. <laughs> Another potential collaboration. Yes, yes. Intuitively, when you think about it, um, a lot of things for women cost more and there's more maintenance... Go to salon, haircut for a woman. <laughs> little things like that. Where like but when you think of having a girl, you think you're, of you saying women are more high maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, sometimes I guess. <laughs> well, see, I have two sons, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I get there's other things like you, video games. That, everything costs 
has like a different. Well, actually, in Turkey and other aspects, it's like if they get married, then you don't have to think about them anymore. So then the sounds may be more like like more expensive. Like so, because you have to do the wedding, and like if you have a daughter, you don't have to do it because the male side is doing it. In Turkey, it's a Turkish tradition. That's interesting because that's that's exactly the opposite of the U.S. tradition, right? The the father of the bride pays for the wedding. And, oh, okay. uh, and everything so there. In Turkey, yeah. yeah, the father of like the groom is waiting for the wedding. Engagement I'm, is like the. I'm moving to Turkey for the next few years <laughs> and then coming back. <laughs> that would be interesting Not to do this yeah. analysis yeah. with a Turkish data set. See if it I flips. Think yeah. Yeah. yeah, that would be interesting. Very good. Very good. Yeah, I was just going to say, and also with like the risk of um, a daughter having a child before she's out of the house, um, that could be a, a big financial burden. On the family, so it would be interesting to see how much is is related to paying for a wedding versus just the risk of having a daughter in general. Feeling financially responsible right. for the daughter in adulthood. Right. Yeah. I see. Yeah, that's that's another sort of potential explanation for the empirical result that I found. I come away from this uh, thinking about mm-hmm. mm, maybe it's a little too late for my daughter and she won't <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she won't yeah. be able to benefit. But I I, uh, I should probably be thinking a little bit harder about uh, education earlier on with my with my boys. Yeah, and educating them on it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Getting getting the five twenty nines going on all of them. Mm-hmm. And, and don't save for your children's college education at the expense of saving for your retirement. Yes. Because then, then all I'm doing is uh, pushing them into that sandwich, huh? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Thank you very much, Vicky. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you all for joining us on Mad Hat Economics. We'll see you next time. <laughs>